The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 23, uh, verses 1 to 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Well, good morning. How is everyone doing today? Isn't it beautiful outside? I know every time I come up here, I talk about how beautiful it is outside. (laughs) And it always is. So uh, I grew up in Minnesota. I don't know how many of you knew that. But it is beautiful there, and I grew up loving the outdoors. But that's not what the sermon's about. So (laughs) uh, if you closed your Bibles after we read the scripture, I'm going to encourage you to open them back up. Because I'm going to preach from it. We're going to be looking through it the entire time, and you're going to need it. But first, I'm going to tell you a story. So, just a few years ago, I read a story called Tartuffe. If you've read this story, heard the story, raise your hand. <clears throat> oh, we've got a few. Okay, Tartuffe. It's Pierre, right? Okay. Good, I remembered. Um, now, the story of Tartuffe is an interesting one. It's a, a French story. It was actually written as a play uh, in the 1600s. And so there's a lot of things going on, but uh, the story's written about a, a man uh, around the, a certain period of time, about a guy named Tartuffe. <laughs> it's not, it's, it's really simple. And Tartuffe is this, this traveling holy man who uh, meets a man named Oregon. If you want to know how it's spelled, it's like Oregon, but without the E, or Oregon. I might be completely butchering the name, but that's okay. Um, he meets this man, and Oregon is this, is this important, wealthy man uh, who serves in the king's court. And he meets Tartuffe, and he thinks, Tartuffe is amazing. Uh, he's, he's righteous. He's humble. He loves God. These are all the things I'm missing in my life. And, and so he just he falls in love with who Tartuffe is. And so he brings Tartuffe into his home, and he feeds him, and he gives him clothes, and he takes care of him. And Tartuffe is, is just there to give his humble, uh, righteous advice. And when Oregon's wife falls sick, someone's like, oh, your wife is sick. And he's like, oh, but how is Tartuffe? He just cares about Tartuffe. And then he, they, they try to bring it back. He's like, well, your wife is you know, not feeling too well. And he's like, but how is Tartuffe? And he just cares about Tartuffe. And about the time you start getting sick of hearing the name Tartuffe, the story starts to get really good. And so Tartuffe, if you haven't guessed, is this good guy. And he comes in and he, <clears throat> he says certain things like about how, how unworthy he is. 
and how good God is and how kind Oregon is and how if he, the only thing he can do is offer his meager prayers so that the God on high might hear a tiny mite like him and answer his pious prayers. And everything's going great for Oregon and for uh, Tartuffe. And they're hitting it off, but the rest of the family is like, who is this guy? Because Oregon sees him as this, this righteous, this holy guy who just is, you know, you can't get any better than Tartuffe. And so what he does is he sees, well, I've got this daughter who is going to marry this guy. But why would I want that? I, wanna, I want Tartuffe. And so he gets ready to marry his, his daughter to Tartuffe. And then his son says something bad and defames the good name of Tartuffe. And so what does he do? He disowns his son and says, Tartuffe, I'm going to make you my sole heir. When I die, you get everything I have. You inherit everything I have. My sons, they're nothing to me. I want you, Tartuffe. Because he saw Tartuffe's righteousness. But the thing is, Tartuffe, <laughs> he wasn't so squeaky clean. And while he had this, this way about him where he could quote scripture and he could show what righteousness looked like, like in his humility, he wasn't quite so nice. Um, so while his organ is doing all these things, he's, he's eating like a king. He's stealing brides. He's trying to seduce Organ's wife. Uh, organ in trust gives him these documents saying, you know, I trust you to, to hold on to these. And they're documents that could get him in trouble if the king ever saw these. And he signs them up. You know, if, if anything happens to me, you get everything I have. And so what is... Tartuffe do. Tartuffe <laughs> kicks everybody out of the house. And it's not until Oregon figures out that, okay, he's trying to, to get with my wife. He's, he's stealing my house, evicting my family. And then suddenly armed guards show up and say, you have to leave. You know, the king's guards. Tartuffe was a hypocrite. He was uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And it's funny because in the, the centuries since, since sorry, um, the name Tartuffe has become... Another word for hypocrite. So if you were accused by anyone of tartuffery, well, you get it. You know, you're being a hypocrite. Uh, and so tartuffery, that just makes me laugh every time I hear it. Um, but we have an even older and better known word for hypocrite. That's one that Jesus coined himself. It's the word Pharisee. And so as we dig into the passage today, I just want to start by praying uh, that God uses his time for his glory. Uh, so if you'd pray with me. God, we thank you for today. We thank you that you are good, that you are mighty. As we've sung in the music today, as we are going to see in your word, Lord, you are humble. You call us to be humble. And when there are people in this world who, who claim to know who you are, live in prideful and self-righteous ways. God, that's not what you want. So help us to come to you with humble hearts this morning, to hear your word as what it is, your word, full of authority, what leads us in our lives. Be glorified today, we ask this in your name. Amen. So I said Pharisee. Pharisee, another word for hypocrite. So I want you to look uh, in your Bibles, today it was in chapter 23, uh, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to start with verses 1 and 2. It said, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. 
So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. <laughs> that sounds like an interesting command, doesn't it? I mean, uh, that's kind of like what I think of when I hear parents who say, you know, do what I do as I say, not as I do. You know, it sounds great, doesn't it? I think hearing that as a kid, I was like, really? You're giving me that line, do as I say, not as I do? But here, this is what Jesus is saying. And what got me thinking is he said, they sit on Moses' seat. So I, I had to think, what, is, what does this mean? Now, Moses was in charge of giving the law to the Israelites. He sat in a place of authority. He, he judged when there were disputes. He was put in charge to keep Israel in check. And through this long line of people who studied the law and who taught other people the law. It went from Moses to other people that were put in authority. And the Pharisees were experts in the law. They studied it from when they were young. They took pride in knowing the law, knowing it better than anyone else. But he's not saying that these Pharisees, even though I'm going to say that they're, they're hypocrites. But the thing is... <laughs> They knew what they were talking about. They, they taught well. They knew the law well. Their issue was that they didn't follow the law. And so if it gives you a little bit of context, the last few weeks uh, for people who are new or people who are like me and, you know, once it's behind you, you forget what, last, what happened last week. Um, and so this passage is coming on the heels of two different chapters, uh, chapters 21 and 22, which have back and forth discussion of Jesus talking with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees asked Jesus a question, and Jesus asked the Pharisees a question. And Pastor Brandon compared it to a tennis match going back and forth, only Jesus is really good at tennis in that metaphor. Um, but what's happening here is that Jesus has led up to this discussion with these other chapters. And he tells three particular parables that I want to talk about. The first is the parable of the two sons in Matthew 21. And so I'll just read it here. It said, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went, and he did the will of the father. I'm oh, sorry, I skipped a line. <laughs> he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did did the will of his father. And they, which the Pharisees and the scribes said, the first. Jesus said, well, and he goes on, but the important thing to note is the Pharisees knew the answer. They had a doubt. Uh, and then we find in just a little bit later in verse 33 of chapter 21, the parable of the tenants. He said, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. And he put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When his servants, um, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. And again, they answer really well. And the issue isn't that they answer well. It's that they answer well. Okay, follow me on this. Okay, the fact that they answer well shows that they know what they should do. But in both these first two, Jesus comes back. And in, at the end of the, the parable of the two sons, he said, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. Ouch. If you are a group of people who pride yourself on how well you know God's law and how holy you are, when you hear the prostitutes and the tax collectors will go into, the, into God's kingdom before you, <laughs> if somebody says that to me, I'm going to get upset. Um, but then he goes on and he says, but For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. And at the end of the parable of the Terence, he says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone, and he's talking about Christ as the cornerstone. Whoever falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The stone that the builders rejected. They speak well, so do what they say. But the issue with the Pharisees is that they preach, but do not practice. (laughs) So me, preaching in front of all of you, I'm suddenly very (laughs) self-conscious. You know, Jesus is tearing apart these people. And this is just the start. Like my passage that I'm preaching on today is only the start of Jesus tearing into the Pharisees. Originally, I was slotted to preach that portion, but I think Brandon decided maybe that would be a little too harsh for me. So I I was kind of grateful. But if I was the Pharisees, I would not be feeling too good. Because in those passages, he was talking to the Pharisees. And it says that the Pharisees started to perceive that Jesus was talking about them. And they started to get really upset. But in this passage, what's going on, if you read the first verse, it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples. And so, where he was first talking to the Pharisees, having this discussion with the Pharisees back and forth, suddenly he turns to the crowd and to the disciples, and he talks about the Pharisees while they're there. And you know they're there because in verse 13, he turns back and talks to the Pharisees. And this reminds me a little bit of when uh, a parent is talking to one kid about another kid. They say, all right, Billy, you saw what Devin did. You saw that Devin's punished for a month. Don't be like Devin. That's what's going on. He's turning to the disciples and and to the crowd, and he's explaining, you know, you have this great example in front of you of what not to do. And so that's what we touch on now. Now, There's three things that I think are specifically 
addressed by Jesus. And the first of those is Jesus condemning the Pharisees' hypocrisy. So if you want to look at um, verse, the end of verse 3 and into verse 4, he says, For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Let's look at that. <laughs> they practice but don't preach. They tie up heavy burdens, but, and they put them on people's shoulders, but they're not willing to move them with a finger. And I, I think this is just kind of a funny, funny phrase. But you have to understand the Pharisees, the Pharisees loved the law. They were experts in the law. In fact, um, Pharisees had this idea that not only was there written law, there was oral law. If there was any way that from a young boy I could grow up never breaking any laws, I could be righteous. I could be good, and God would see that I was good. If I if I didn't do anything wrong. So what they did is they took the Ten Commandments and they took other <clears throat> rules that had been made up around the Ten Commandments, and they just kind of built safeguards around those. So originally you had ten rules, which, you know, ten rules are pretty simple to follow. Granted, the first people didn't follow those. <laughs> you had murder right away in the beginning. Uh, so eventually you have these ten rules. By the time the Pharisees get their hands on it and they work around it, they've got over 600 laws that people are just expected to know and to live by. And so if a person came up to a Pharisee in the temple or in the synagogue and someone said, you know, I just want to be righteous. I just picture the Pharisee digging into his robe, pulling out this big book and dropping it. You hear boom. And suddenly it's like, well, if you just follow those rules, you'll be okay. <laughs> it's, I don't picture that being, you know, if that's inviting. Like, Welcome to Christianity. Here's a Bible this big. And if you just follow all these rules, you're in. They tied up this heavy burden, so much so that with all of these laws, it was impossible to be righteous. If you did any of these things wrong, you're unclean. If you're unclean, you don't go to the temple. If you don't go to the temple, you can't worship God where he is. And so people put these heavy burdens. But the issue is, even if they were good rules to keep good laws, they didn't even follow it. They're giving these extreme burdens to people who just want to know who God is, to follow God. And they're making it more difficult than it has to be. So difficult that people can't follow God. They can't have any trust that they're doing the right thing. And these people who are setting these rules don't even follow it. The irony is they were giving, given honor and authority for being righteous men who knew the law. But there were men who didn't care for the law as much as they liked to show. So it's kind of the same way that we, we're quick to jump on politicians when we see them breaking the rules. We think, yeah, they know the laws. They know what should be going on but they're the ones breaking it. And so Jesus, in the same way, is digging into these Pharisees who should know better, but don't live that way. So the second part is Jesus condemns the Pharisees for their masks, for their facade. 
So I want you to look in verse 5. In verse 5 it says, They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love their place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Well, that sounds nice. The only reason these Pharisees are doing anything is to be seen doing it. So as I read this, every time I read it, I get confused because I think, what is a phylactery? How many of you have used phylactery in the last week talking to someone? (laughs) All right. So a quick example. What is a phylactery? A phylactery is a little box which contains little pieces of Scripture from the first five books of the Bible. You get some from Exodus, some from Deuteronomy. And you get a little black box that you put on your head and a little black box that you put on your arm close to your heart. And the point of these boxes is you wear them when you're praying and it reminds you to follow the law. And tassels, tassels were part of this garment that you would wear when you prayed. So here you have guys who are walking around. And if you were to walk around with your phylacteries and your tassels, what it's saying is, I'm praying. I pray. So you just imagine someone walking around. And sure, that's okay. We like prayer. As a church, we love prayer. Prayer is good. Prayer is great. (laughs) But here's what they were doing. They're saying, oh, well, you know, if I make my box of Scripture bigger, If I make that bigger, if I make my tassels longer, what are they saying? They're saying, I pray, and I pray all the time. Look at me. Look at me praying. Look at how holy I am. Don't you wish you were like me? (laughs) And Jesus is saying, you make your phylacteries big. You make your tassels long. And they love the place of honor at feasts. Now, feasts... In Israel, you had a feast to celebrate what God had done for Israel. If you had a feast, it was because God did something good, and we're going to remember it. We're going to teach our children about it. And so there are people here who are like, I love when people see me. So they would go to these, these feasts, and they sat in the seats of honor. And I'm sure they were humble about it, too. And they said, you know, they would say things like, I'm sure that, you know, yes, I would love to sit at the head of the table. You want me to cut the turkey? That's an American, you know, equivalent. You want me to cut the turkey and sit at the head of the table? I can do that. I would love to do that. May God be praised for that. Now, I'm I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. I'm sorry. Um, Let me keep going. They liked the seats of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. Oh, they wanted to sit where you could see, where you could hear, where people could see you loving that they were reading the Word of God, that they were teaching the Word of God. This was a public place. People would go there to worship God. And if you were there all the time, people would say, wow, look at how holy this guy is. He's got his phylacteries on. He's got his tassels going on. He's he's in the synagogue every day. He knows his stuff. He worships God. This guy is what I want to be. But the issue is, (laughs) it was all for show. They loved the place of honor at feasts. They loved the seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. I think we all love that. You walk through town and people are like, hey, Lawrence, how's it going? In church, I love it because people know me. I may not know everyone. Somehow everyone knows me. Maybe it's the fact that I'm standing up here. (laughs) 
But people are like, oh, hey, Lawrence, how's it going? And it's like, yeah, it's great. And it's nice being in this area. I go back to school. <laughs> you know, I walk into, into Hamilton or Essex. No one knows who I am. But here, at least I've got you know, a couple hundred people. They know who I am. But people would walk in the marketplaces. You know, they didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have long-term food storage. They didn't have <laughs> frozen dinners. So if you wanted food, you went to the marketplace. If you needed to trade money for goods, well, then went to the marketplace. And the Pharisees were there, and they'd shake hands. Well, I don't know if they'd shake hands. Maybe that'd get them dirty. Um, <laughs> but they would love to be greeted, and people would call them rabbi. People were like, well, what does rabbi mean? Rabbi means teacher. But it was, it was an honorable title. And they loved it. Not only did they like it, Jesus says they loved it. They loved all of these things. They loved to be seen, and they loved to be seen as righteous. The third thing that Jesus condemns them for is their pride. And so Jesus is speaking to the crowd and the disciples about the Pharisees, and he says, don't be like them. So he says in verse 8, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have but one teacher. And you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. (laughs) What he's saying here is don't call each other teacher. Because you only have one teacher. And all of you are equal. Brothers. He says, don't call a man father, which is a sign of reverence in that time because you all have one father. He's the heavenly father. He's not on earth here. (laughs) You're not my father. You're not my father. You are not the heavenly father. That's okay. There's only one heavenly father, and he's not me. He says, don't be called instructor because Christ, the Christ, is the only instructor. Now, this is Jesus really talking about himself, but of course, they didn't believe it was him, so he said, the Christ, so that they knew what he was talking about. One instructor. It's not you, it's not you, it's not me. It's Christ. And so he says, rather than loving these prideful titles, understand that there is only one person worthy of that kind of glory. Christ. These people are prideful. And they're self-righteous. And they think more of themselves than they ever have of God. And they make sure, absolutely sure, that you think just as much of them as they do. But Christ is condemning their pride. He says in Matthew 19, 17, in a conversation with the rich young man, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. There's only one who's good. There's only one person who's righteous. And in James 4.12, we read, There is only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And what he's saying here isn't what a lot of people take it to mean. They said, oh, well, you, you're telling me I'm doing something wrong. You're judging me. Don't judge me. I can live my own life. Now, he's not condemning mutual accountability within the Christian community. Saying, I know the standard we're called to, and I want to help you out. Loving accountability. What he's condemning is people who are saying, I'm more righteous than you are, and I can tell. I don't sin, but I see you sinning, and you're doing this wrong. 
God, that doesn't sound good. If I were to stand up here and say that, what's he doing? He's, he's talking to us and he's saying he's sin. he doesn't sin, but we sin. That's okay. Uh, Christ is saying in Matthew 23 that we are not Christ. And we shouldn't pretend to be. We're all equals, called to the same standard as one another, and all sinners accountable to the same God. Assuming we're better than someone else and judging them, saying, well, the way they're living, they can't get to heaven. That's not our call. It's between them and God. He said to him, you shall love in their pride and knowing the law and keeping it. They overlooked the point of the law. They cared so much about keeping the law that they overlooked the law. Which Jesus points out when he's asked to give it in Matthew 22. He says, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so these Pharisees, they, they were so concerned with showing how devoted they were to God that they loved the law and not God. And more than that, they completely ignored the second part of that. Loving your neighbor as yourself. But Christ doesn't leave it there. He goes on with the last two verses and says something incredibly profound, even though it's something so incredibly simple. It says in verse 11, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's exactly what Christ does here and in next week's passage. He takes people who had exalted themselves as holy and righteous and better than others, and he brings them down a notch. In 21 and 22, at the end of the passage we read in 22, it says that no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. I think that's taking him down a notch. But he goes on, and here he's talking about them, but not to them. And then he turns in next week's passage and he talks right to them. And he says nasty things. He says mean things. But the God is, as the God of the universe who's allowed to bring people down a notch, he does it. But what I find to be so impactful about verses 11 and 12 is that not only does he humble them in showing them that they're wrong, but he humbles them in going even further that their desire to kill him, their zeal to nail him to a cross and see him die because they didn't re- he didn't recognize them as righteous or holy. He proved once and for all that there's only one God and it wasn't the Pharisees. It wasn't their job to decide who makes it into the kingdom of God and who doesn't. It wasn't the law, it was Christ. Even further, Christ laid down the pattern for living in a way that honors God. And he modeled it by himself. 
He said, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's the way that Christ lived. It's the way the apostles lived. And it's the way that those who truly know God live. The greatest event in human history is the reality that Christ came to earth as a man. He came as a baby. And not just a baby, a baby in a manger. Not just a baby in a manger, a baby in a manger in an animal trough. If it doesn't get much more humble beginnings than that, I, I can't think of what does. Lived a life as a carpenter, working with his hands in the dirt, worked, bled like a normal man. But even a man like that brought life-bringing truth when the men in authority were more concerned with their looks and their appearance of righteousness than the love of God. And so Christ, the king of everything that he made, came to earth to die on a cross for a crime he didn't commit, sentenced by men who had no right to sentence him through the testimony of people who lied. This is the king who made everything, who was around before the earth was around, who made the earth. And when he has an opportunity to defend himself against lies, he doesn't say anything. When they drag him out and beat him, he doesn't speak up. He doesn't call legions of angels like it's his right to do. He doesn't speak up like it's his right to do. Instead, he humbles himself to the point of death on a cross, which was one of the worst ways the Romans could think of of killing you. You're nailed, you're you're hung up there for as long as you live in full view of everyone else beaten, mutilated. They stuck a crown of thorns on him saying, oh, you think you're king? Let's give you a crown. I was trimming (laughs) in Detroit. I was trimming a rose bush. Rose bush thorns hurt. And they're little things. But when you imagine a cross or a, a crown of thorns, I imagine it wasn't just little thorns. And even if it was, those poking into your skin hurt. I've got one spot on one finger where it, I think it hit me really deep. It still hurts. There's no thorn in there. It just, it's miserable. But a crown of thorns, on top of everything else, where they tore his clothes, they gambled for him, for them, and they hung him like a common criminal next to a, to a thief. This was the king of the universe. He was beaten and killed by men who thought themselves... They thought they were more righteous than he was. It was and is the epitome of humility and love. <laughs> and so while you might be thinking, you know, knowing, knowing what's coming, what Jesus does here, or takes the Pharisees down a notch, you're probably thinking, yeah, Jesus, you take down those Pharisees. <laughs> you bring them down a peg. They're wicked, they're selfish, they're, they don't follow their own rules. I mean, that, yeah, bring them down. But as I read through this passage, I couldn't help but feel that if it's a 2,000-year-old story written down for a specific purpose, that people today are going to continue reading it, why does it stick around? Why, Why do we read it this week? Why do we read it any week? And I start to realize that 
here was it's a simple trap that the Pharisees fell into. A desire to serve God, to to give God our lives, ended up being something that they devoted their lives instead to righteousness, instead of the righteousness that comes through God. And the early church didn't see that there was a possibility of them becoming hypocrites. Why mention this story at all? Just mention that Jesus yelled at some guys and it was okay afterward? Uh, So there was a survey in 2007 uh, done by Lifeway. Uh, We have some of their books. Uh, They're a good publisher. They they did a survey in 2007 uh, about people's beliefs and church-going habits, among some other things. And according to the survey, a majority of Americans who said they believed in God didn't go to church. Why? That's a simple question. And 72% of the people asked that said it was because the church is full of hypocrites. I saw that. I thought 72% of the people asked. That's, that's a little high. That's a little harsh. But I think it's a little easy sometimes for us to think like the Pharisee uh, in the parable of Luke 18. This is Jesus speaking about a parable uh, of this Pharisee. And he says, God, this is the Pharisee praying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And this tax collector he's talking about, you know, they're wicked people. They would steal, they would be unfair, and people hated them. But here he was in this parable, on his knees, not even willing to look up to heaven because he didn't see himself as worthy, but he was repentant. And he said, God, I'm sorry. Meanwhile, the Pharisee, is standing up there, hands up raised, looking up, saying, God, I thank you that I don't sin. I thank you that you've made me this way and I'm perfect. And what Christ says is that this Pharisee is not so righteous as he thinks. And I know there's small things that we do in church. Like, uh, and this is, this is from my life. So I said, we want to sit, I want to sit in my favorite seat in church. I like that little back row there. Where my wife and my friends are. <laughs> I like the little seat in the back. Uh, I like, see, we like to make sure that we talk to the right people, make sure that the pastor knows we're here, because I'm going to make a point to shake his hand on the way out the door. And they're all innocent things. I've, I've done every one of those. But there's little ways in our own lives that we like to polish ourselves up. We like to to show others that we're, we are good Christians. And it's not things that we do out of love or because we value people as much as we value ourselves, but it's things that we think, I probably should do this. I do that. <laughs> I've done that all the time. Um, and so when I was younger, when I f- first came to faith, I... I thought, you know, the Bible says that I should love people more than myself. And so when we scooped ice cream, if there was a bowl that was slightly bigger, or if there was a piece of cake that was slightly bigger, I thought, I, it's the Christian thing to give them the bigger piece. And I did it, but I hated it. <laughs> Anyone who's had siblings, when the, you, you grab it first because you want the big piece. That's the whole point. I was bigger. It was fair. <laughs> but I, I hated doing that. And I know there's other things we do. In church, it's like, you think, oh, I should help put away the chairs after the, the meal because it's the Christian thing to do. 
Or we say, like, I should help my neighbor clean up his yard because it's, it's the Christian thing to do. Or I should invite my neighbor to Bible study because it's the Christian thing to do. Or I should hand out tracts in my neighborhood at Christmas because it's the Christian thing to do. Or maybe I should go on a mission trip because those people need Jesus. Eh, it's, it's the Christian thing to do. And they're all good things. But we can do them for the wrong reason. And the Pharisees, they were zealous. They were passionate about God. Paul was a Pharisee who was so passionate about God that he killed Christians because they thought that they were blasphemous, that they were liars. And their passion is something that I envy. Their zeal to live out God's commands, I respect. But they completely ignored who God is in trying to serve God. We all, even like the Pharisees, fall short of what Christ said in Matthew 22. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And he said in chapter 23, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so as I thought to myself, why in the beginning does Jesus turn from the Pharisees to the disciples and to the crowd and talk about the Pharisees? But to give them the example of these are what you could be, but it's not what you should be. What you should be, Christ also gave an example in himself. The king of all things gave his life for us, even though we sinned and lived in a way that didn't glorify God, but it glorified us. He humbled himself to death on a cross, not expecting that of us. And rising again, he justified us so that those sins are washed away. If the only thing we do is humble ourselves and recognize him as God as salvation. And we grow deeper in our knowledge of who he is and his love as we actively love him and love others. It doesn't say as, you know, more than ourselves, but love others as yourself. It's a great thing, a breaking thing, a humbling thing to give up our idea of ourselves as some sort of symbol of perfection. And if we lift God up as the only one who is, was, or ever will be perfect, it's humbling. We only love because God first loved us. And so if we let go of our pride and we humble ourselves knowing that without Christ, we really don't have anything. We have no joy. We have no hope. We have no salvation. It's not because of anything we do. It's because of what Christ did and is doing in us. We don't have any right to pride. None. We, like the Pharisees, have no righteousness apart from Christ. And so at the end of Tartuffe, Zorgan's family is being led out of the house, about to be sent away by armed guards sent by the king. 
the guards turn around, and instead of arresting Oregon, they arrest Tartuffe. And it's this dramatic buildup. They're being evicted. They're being called out by guards, and then the guards instead arrest Tartuffe, and they talk to Oregon and say, the king has seen through Tartuffe's hypocrisy. And instead of following him and what he said because he knows he's a liar, you, who have loved the king, who are faithful to the crown, we give everything back. So the man who exalted himself, Tartuffe, was humbled, thrown in jail. The man who exalted himself, the man who humbled himself when he found the truth, when he saw the truth for what it was, humbled himself and was exalted by the king, was redeemed by the king. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are, that you are the great and mighty king. Lord, you've made us so that we can understand your word. You've given us your words so that we can understand you. And Lord, even though we are sinners, even though on our own we could not learn who you were, Lord, you've done a great thing in giving us Christ, who died the death that we couldn't die, after living the life that we couldn't live, so that by his death and resurrection, Lord, we have a path to you. Help us as your people to to give up our pride, to give up our ideas of who we are. As we live with people who don't know who you are, we pray that we would know your love. As we live with people, other believers, Lord, help us to be humble. To do things not out of obligation or out of pride, but out of love. Love for you, love for others. If we see someone in a sin, help us to go gently, to go lovingly, to correct, not for our benefit to look better, but for their benefit. That as a community, we can better worship you together, more unified. If we see someone who doesn't know you sinning, help us to love them. God, in everything we do, We want to give you the glory that you deserve as our God, as our master, as the one who saved us. Be lifted high and be the only one who receives glory because you are the only one worthy of glory. We pray this in your good, in your precious name. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.